Well, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas to you all. It's good to be with you on this last Sunday of 2020. If you've got a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking at different portions of this chapter that will focus primarily on verses 35 to 39. Uh, This morning, uh, I'm repaying a debt of gratitude. You gave me the gift of a sabbatical this summer. It was a gift that was greatly needed and greatly appreciated. It was a time to reflect, to relax, to be refreshed for the next season of ministry. Now, because of the coronavirus, the sabbatical looked a lot different than the one that I had planned about a year and a half earlier. And yet in God's providence, I think it was the one that we needed. Now, over the course of the summer, I had the opportunity to reflect on my life and ministry. Now, I know I don't look it, but I've been in vocational ministry now for 30 years. 17 of those 30 years has been as an ordained minister in the EPC. And of those 17 years, nearly half of them have been spent here as a pastor at Rivermont. And as I've reflected on those 30 years, different themes began to emerge. Themes of gratitude for God's faithful provision. Of joy for fruitful ministry and relationships. Of brokenness over sin and its impact on others. And of frustration from the busyness of ministry. And it's this last theme of busyness that occupied my sabbatical reflections and writings. You see, there have been times in those 30 years where I've allowed the busyness of ministry to squeeze out the business of heaven. I've allowed many good things to distract me from the main thing, which is a wholehearted, undivided love for the Lord. You see, ministry is so often about doing, while intimacy is about being. And when one outweighs the other, well, we can become spiritually unhealthy. One way I've seen this play out in my life is by taking on more than I can handle. I don't do it intentionally, but, well, I seem to do it regularly. You see, over the course of 30 years, I have developed many competencies. Competencies that let me uniquely help where there is a need. But when ministry trumps intimacy, when doing trumps being, I get overwhelmed and burdened by that load. And I lose energy and time for important things like prayer and the Word as well as family and health. I wonder if you can relate to that. Does the busyness of your work or your family or even your ministry trump your intimacy with God? Do you feel the frustration of that busyness as it pulls you away from the things that are truly important? Believe it or not, Jesus knows how you feel. No one was busier than Jesus. No one had more demands on his time or energies than Jesus. No one's schedule was as full as his. He was a busy man, and yet he never seemed to get weighed down by his busyness. He always kept his attention on the business of heaven. How was he able to do that? What what did he do that kept him so focused? Well, let's look at our text and find out. Mark 1, beginning in verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. 
And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's pray. My Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this, your word, which is before us. Oh, Lord, Father, would it read our life even as we read these words that we may be changed, that we may be transformed by the very renewing of our minds. Would you do that in such a way that you are glorified and we are edified. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but when it comes to the end of my workday, I often feel like I have many unfinished items left to attend to. I have to-do items that still need to be done. I have emails that still need a reply. I have projects that still need to be written. It's so hard to leave the church with so many things unfinished. There have, been ta- there have been times when I have felt downright discouraged and defeated by my unfinished work, and I wonder if I'll ever get it done. This unfinished business is often the result of letting the busyness of ministry and life undermine the business of heaven. Now, I doubt I'm alone in this. That depending on your vocation, you probably have experienced similar frustrations with your unfinished business. At the end of the day, you look at the laundry that didn't get washed, the reports that didn't get sent, the kids' homework that didn't get checked, the dinner menu that didn't get planned, or the phone calls that didn't get made, and you hang your head in frustration at all the things that you didn't get done. So much business left unfinished. As I reflected this summer on the challenge of dealing with unfinished business, I wondered if Jesus ever had unfinished business at the end of his day. Were there people he didn't get around to healing? Were there sermons left unwritten? Were there discipleship lessons half conceived? And if he did have unfinished business, did it bother him? Did it frustrate him and keep him up at night? Did he wish he could have been more productive or had had more time in the day? Well, to answer that question, I think it would be helpful to look at a day in the life of Jesus. If we go back about 15 or so verses in Mark 1 to verse 21, we get a glimpse into one of Jesus' work days. Now, ironically enough, his work day happened to be a Sabbath day, a day which is set aside for rest, yet for ministers often looks a little bit different. Jesus started his day by preaching in the synagogue. Many of those who heard Jesus that day had never heard preaching like that. It wasn't just good preaching. It was authoritative preaching. It was powerful. Jesus spoke the word of God as if it was his own word, which, which of course it was. Those in the congregation weren't the only ones who took notice of Jesus' teaching. An unclean spirit, as Mark described it, also took notice There he sought to undermine Jesus' message and motive for being there, accusing Jesus that he was there to destroy them, to destroy their way of life. He sought to attack the truth of God's Word, and Jesus wastes no time in casting out that unclean spirit. This now healed man becomes a living testimony that Jesus came not to destroy, but to give life, but to save. Now, as an aside, this event to me is both sobering and encouraging. It's sobering because it reminds me that we're not always on the same page as Jesus is. 
there are times when we may hear the word preached and we may not like what's being said. We may not like it not because it's wrong, but because it's right. It's true. We feel the Spirit's conviction and it unnerves us. It disrupts the world's influence in our life. It shows us that we are being conformed to the patterns of this world rather than being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And our flesh pushes back. That's sobering to me. But it's also encouraging because as John would later say in 1 John 4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome unclean spirits. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's easy to think that we are prisoners of our temptations and sin. That when, that when they speak, we have to listen and obey. But Jesus shows us that's not true. His power to deliver us from temptation is greater than Satan's power to seduce us by that temptation. For we have the Spirit of Christ living in us. And He is greater than any unclean spirit that may want to work in our life. He is greater. He is stronger. So be encouraged. After that worship service, we read in verse 29 that Jesus and the disciples went over to Simon Andrew's house for a Sabbath lunch. Expecting to find lunch waiting, they instead find Simon's mother-in-law quite ill. Knowing what Jesus had just done to heal the man with the unclean spirit, they asked Jesus to heal her. As quickly as Jesus had expelled the unclean spirit, He healed Simon's mother-in-law of her fever. No medicine could have done what Jesus did for her as her healing was instantaneous and restorative. As the Sabbath day ended, verse 32 shows us that Jesus' workday got extended. You see, the disciples had told the community about Jesus and what He had done. And they brought as many sick and demon-oppressed people they could find to Jesus. In fact, Mark says the whole town turned up on Simon's doorstep. And Jesus did not disappoint. Mark tells us that Jesus healed many of their sicknesses and delivered many from their demonic oppression. But notice that He did not heal all those who were sick. He didn't deliver all those who were oppressed. Not everyone who came looking for healing got it. Now we may ask why. Why didn't Jesus heal everyone or make them whole? Were there just too many people to heal in one night? Or or were there some who didn't really believe in Jesus, like those in His hometown in Mark 6? Well, it's hard to say, but it, it sure seems like Jesus ended His day with unfinished business. So how did it affect Jesus? Well, I don't know about you, but when I have unfinished business, I sometimes have a hard time letting go of it. I may keep thinking about it over dinner or as I'm going to bed. I've even had a hard time going to sleep sometimes at night. It's it's difficult to turn those thoughts off. But we don't get anything like that from Jesus. We don't read that Jesus had difficulty going to sleep. And I don't think He was beating Himself up for not healing or delivering everyone. He slept. And when He woke up the next morning, the first thing He had on His mind wasn't tackling that unfinished business. He wasn't making a mental to-do list for tackling what remained unfinished. You see, that's what we're often tempted to do. When when we wake up, we want to finish the business that we left unfinished from the day before. We want to check it off our list. But not Jesus. 
Look at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. The first thing on Jesus' mind that morning wasn't ministry for God. It was intimacy with God. It wasn't a plan of strategy. It was a prayer of dependency. You see, Jesus knew what awaited him when everyone woke up. He knew the demands on his time and energy that people would have. He knew what he needed to help him through that day. And it, it wasn't a venti americano with room for cream or sugar. It wasn't a color-coded day uh, planner. As good as those things are, it was prayer. It was communion with the Father through the Spirit as a means of glorifying and enjoying Him. You see, as we listen to God's voice through His Word, we hear something very important. We hear Him tell us who we are. And who are we? We are His Beloved. We are His children through the atoning and adopting work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are His beloved, not because of our accomplishments or our productivity or our creativity. It's not even our goodness or kindness or loveliness that endears us to God. We are His because of Christ. Now, practically speaking, why is that so important for us to know? Because there are competing voices in our world and life telling us something very different. Voices that daily challenge who we are in Christ. We see that early in Jesus' ministry. All the way back at the beginning of Mark 1. We read that at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, God did two things. First, He identified Jesus as His beloved Son. And second, He told Him and those who were with Him, That he was well pleased with Jesus. Now this is before any miracles had been performed. Before any sermons had been preached. Before any demons had been cast out. Before he had done anything that might have endeared him to the Father. You see, God wanted his son to know that he was pleased with him before he ever started his life's work and ministry. Now why was that important? Here's why. Because religion tells us to obey and then we'll be accepted by God. He will love us because of our obedience. But the gospel turns that upside down and says that in Christ we are already accepted by God. Therefore, in gratitude, we obey. Religion produces fear and insecurity because we don't know if we've done enough. Where the gospel produces confidence and security because Jesus has done enough. On our behalf. But that doesn't stop Satan from trying to tell us something differently. As he did Jesus in the wilderness. He said to him, if you really are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And if you are the son of God, throw yourself down and see if the angels really will come and rescue you. As Satan tempted our first parents to doubt God's voice in the garden, he tempts Jesus to do the same in the wilderness. How can you be so sure you're the Son of God? You haven't done anything to prove yourself. You've got to earn that. You've got to deserve that title. So why not proving it by turning stones to bread? You've got the power. Why not prove your worthiness? By throwing yourself off a cliff into the arms of rescuing angels. 
Some of you may be wrestling with that this morning. You're thinking about all the ways that you fall short and don't measure up. Unfinished business is like a metaphor for your life. You feel like an unfinished person who doesn't have their act together but should. You wonder when you'll ever be finished, when you'll ever arrive, when you'll ever deserve to be called God's beloved. Well, I'm here to tell you that because you belong to God, because you are His son or daughter through the imputed righteousness of Christ, He is well pleased with you. Listen, you are more than your work, finished or not. You are more than your body type, finished or not. You are more than your ministry, finished or not. You are His. Knowing that and believing that will absolutely empower your work and your obedience to the Lord. Now there is one more thing to note about verse 35 here. Notice that Jesus chose a desolate place to pray that early that morning. Now, there wasn't anything magical about that place, except that it was quiet and he was alone. And we all need those kinds of places, don't we? Now, depending on your stage in life right now, you may not be able to get away like that. You may have to retreat to a literal closet to pray, or your bathroom, or maybe even your car. When I lived in St. Louis with a bunch of roommates, I used to stop off at a park near my house before work. It was very quiet except for a few walkers. And I could roll my window down and, and pray and sing without being disturbed or disturbing someone else. I don't think birds counted as disturbing them with my singing. And if you're thinking, well, I'm sorry, I'm just too busy in the morning to pray, then find some time during the day where you can be alone, where you can pray for 10 or 15 minutes and have distraction-free time, where God can remind you of your identity in Christ. And I, of course, I can already hear someone saying, well, I just don't have time to pray like that. And, and, and to that I would say, I get it. I've thought the same thing at times. But friends, I want to suggest to you that you don't have time not to pray. You can't afford not to pray because you need that reminder of your identity in Christ. You need that prayer. Your spouse needs that prayer. Your family needs that prayer. Your co-workers need that prayer. Your neighbors need that prayer. Our church needs that prayer. Intimacy with God absolutely informs our identity and empowers all of our work. But something else intrigues me about Jesus here. It comes when the disciples catch up to Him later that morning. They interrupt His prayer time with this one line in verse 37. Everyone is looking for you. And talk about a loaded statement. Do you know what I hear in that statement? Expectation. Obligation. Unfinished business. Everyone is looking for you. (laughs) You started something last night and you need to finish it. There are still needs left to be met and you have to meet them. The people are waiting, so let's get going. Now for those of you who, like me, may struggle to win people's approval, this statement is toxic because it feeds our insecurities and it kicks into overdrive an unhealthy desire to please people, to win their affections by fulfilling their expectations. We often do this at great harm to ourselves and to others. 
But intimacy with God not only informs our identity, it also informs our priorities. In prayer, God shapes our priorities and the time spent pursuing them. Notice how Jesus responds to their expectations and the people's expectation. In verse 38, he tells them, let's go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. In effect, Jesus tells the disciples, no. No to their expectations. No to the need that is still left unmet. Now, I would have loved to know how the disciples received that news. After all, they're the ones who had gathered all those people who needed healing. They had created an expectation that Jesus could and even would heal everyone. But now he says it's time to move on. And let's not forget this is Simon and Andrew's hometown. They have to go back and tell their neighbors, their friends, even maybe their family members this disappointing news. As I've reflected on the last 30 years, the the one person I've served the longest with is our former senior pastor, Clay Smith. I served with him three plus years here at Rivermont and then six plus years when we were young associate pastors at Central Presbyterian in St. Louis. We shared a lot of ministry and life together. And one of the things that he has shared with me and the other pastors here was a line from a book called Leadership on the Line. You may have read that book. But in that book, the authors state that leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can handle. Now, um, that's a great line. And you know why that's a great line? Because it's true. Leaders will and do disappoint those who follow them. Now, if you're a parent of a teenager or even a young child, you, you get this already. As leaders here at Rivermont... We cherish the unity of Christ in our fellowship. Yet we know from time to time a decision will be made that won't fit everyone's wishes. The current global pandemic we're in has certainly taught us that. And yet we seek to disappoint in a way that maintains our unity and your trust in us as leaders. Jesus disappointed his disciples when he failed to meet their expectations. And yet he did it in a way that they could handle. He told them no, and then he reminded them of a greater priority. You see, Jesus never intended to heal every sick person he came into contact with. He didn't intend to cast out every unclean spirit. His ministry in Capernaum was meant to give people a foretaste of the coming kingdom. It was but a first fruits of the kingdom of God. A kingdom that he would inaugurate not by overthrowing Rome, but by overthrowing sin and death on the cross. The call to Capernaum was only to create an outpost of the kingdom there and then move on. The fact that we're meeting here today for worship is because Jesus moved on to the next towns. It's because he said no to staying there. And he doesn't intend for that work to stay here at Rivermont. He intends for this church to be an outpost of the kingdom so that we might send our best people and our best resources to plant other outposts in this city and the world so that the gospel can bring healing to our sin-sick world. Those priorities were formed in that desolate place of prayer. It's there where God reminded Jesus and where He reminds us of what we've been called to do. 
He informs us of our priorities so that we can say no to people-pleasing, so that we can say no to world-pleasing and say yes to God-pleasing. So how did Jesus um, view leaving Capernaum? Did He see it as leaving with unfinished business? Well, I think the fact that Jesus said it's time to move on tells us that He didn't. I think He saw His work there as being finished because there was the unfinished business of preaching and proclaiming the gospel in other towns. His business wouldn't be finished until dying on a cross, He would utter the word tetelestai, which means it is finished. No sin left to pay for. No more wrath to atone for. No judgment left to render other than the word stamped across our life, forgiven. As we enter into a new year, let's spend it pursuing intimacy with God. Let's give ourselves more and more to the business of heaven rather than the busyness of life and the busyness of the cares of this world. Let's pray like our life depends on it because it does. Let's pray for continual reminders of our identity in Christ that will help us live out of His secure love for us so that we can be free to know His priorities for our life and pursue them. And when it comes to having unfinished business to deal with, let me suggest that instead of getting bogged down by what's left unfinished, that we rejoice in what is finished. Instead of getting bogged down by the ways that your life is still unfinished, rejoice in the ways Christ's finished work on the cross has changed your life. Let's give thanks that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Because you see, your unfinished life is His business. Let's pray. Eternal Father, we ask that You would call us to be a people that are drawn to greater depths of intimacy with You in the coming year. That we would not succumb to the temptation to busy our lives with good things, but pursue the one good thing, which is intimacy with You. Would You fan the flame of our desire to pray so that we may be continually reminded of our identity in Christ and have our priorities be informed by Your mission for our lives. Do this for Your glory and our good. In the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.